Welcome to the third episode of Capture Q. Today's guest is Ian Young. Ian has been a journalist for more than 20 years. He's worked for Australian newspapers and he worked at the London Evening Standard. In 1997, he moved to Hong Kong, where he shared awards for excellence in investigative journalism and human rights reporting. Today, he is a Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. Most prominently, he's been covering the Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing in Vancouver. In this episode, he gives us a brief outline of what that hearing is all about. But we also talk about his other notable reporting. In the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, Ian uncovered a policy that led to devastation in Chinese-Canadian care home facilities. He explains that story to me, but I highly recommend you check out his articles at the South China Morning Post. As always, we appreciate you listening. If you enjoy the show today, you can find others by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast provider or by following us on social media. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Tracy. It's great to be here. Mm-hmm. Let's just start with your background. If you want to walk us through, you know, what got you here today. I know you've been with, you know, other news organizations. If you want to briefly talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I started out in journalism back in Australia, um, way back in the distant past. And uh, I ended up uh, leaving Australia in the 1990s. Uh, I ended up working in London on Fleet Street for a couple of years. Uh, and then uh, I actually went out to Hong Kong in 1997 to cover the handover. Oh, wow. um, which seems like an in- impossibly long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that turned into a job at the South China Morning Post, uh, where I've, I've basically been working on and off, um, well, you know, for, for nearly 24 years. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it's been quite an amazing experience. Uh, and the most recent part of that has involved me resettling here in Vancouver, uh, where my wife uh, is originally from. Uh, yeah, and I've, I've been the SCMP's uh, Vancouver correspondent since uh, about 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess we could do that. We could go into your, because you, you have done quite a few investigations that are really interesting. Um, we could start with, if you wanted, you're covering the Meng Wanzhou trial. Um, you've been doing that for a while. Um, I guess because my audience is quite general, do you want to give kind of an outline about, uh, you know, how that started, how it's going? And Yeah, yeah sure. Look, I mean, the Meng Wanzhou extradition hearings have um, kind of consumed my life uh, since uh, December the 1st, 2018, which is when um, Meng Wanzhou was arrested at Vancouver's airport. And for the people who aren't exactly familiar with who she is, uh, she's um, the chief financial officer for Huawei, uh, which is... Uh, one of the biggest uh, tech firms in China and a real global player. Um, so a globally important company. And not only is she the chief financial officer, she's the daughter of the company's founder. So she's a profoundly important figure. And so when she was arrested here in Vancouver at the behest of American authorities, um, that was an earthquake mm-hmm. in Chinese relations with the West and with Canada and with the United States in particular, uh, and so the battle over her fate, um, you know, in many ways, it's a sort of a synthesis of the tensions that exist between China and the West and that have been emerging uh, in recent years. Uh, you know, it also puts us on the cutting edge of these sort of vast geopolitical changes that are really reshaping the world. It puts us at, in Vancouver at the pointy end of all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, we're, we're under the spotlight for this global attention, for this 
really kind of a magnitude nine story. Now, there's a lot of other issues have emerged since then um, that have pushed Meng Wanzhou's uh, case onto the back burner for a lot of people. But I do think that that's going to um, re-emerge. And as the what should be the final stages of the extradition hearing play out this year, uh, that's going to be a profoundly important thing for, you know, how how China engages with the rest of the world and specifically mm-hmm. how it engages with Canada. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what specifically is she being charged with? I know she was the CFO. Um, what are they specifically trying to extradite her for? Yeah, well, she's not on trial here. She's uh, they, they want her to face trial in the United States. And what's going on here mm-hmm. is the extradition hearings, which uh, will determine whether or not she gets sent to New York to face trial on fraud charges. Now, she is accused by the Americans of uh, defrauding HSBC Bank uh, by lying to the bank about Huawei's uh, um, business dealings in Iran. Uh, and those business dealings were allegedly in breach of American sanctions. And what she's not been charged with is breaching American sanctions on Iran. She's been charged with fraud. Um, but Meng Wanzhou's lawyers and her legal team have have basically depicted uh, this case as a dressed-up attempt to um, charge her or to pursue her with breaching American sanctions, uh, and that the the, the the so-called fraud charges actually represent an abusive process, uh, and that she should be let go. That's that that's the bottom line for the Chinese and for the, her lawyers is that they want her to be released immediately. And you know this had a big impact uh, outside the courts, obviously because. We've seen two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who were promptly arrested on espionage charges in China uh, in the days after Meng was arrested. There, well, one was a former diplomat and one was a businessman who were engaged in China at the time. Uh, and as I said, they've been, they were charged with spying. They were put on brief, mm-hmm. very brief closed-door trials. Uh, so we don't know what happened uh, at those trials. Um, no verdicts have been released, but those trials lasted, you know, for a couple of hours only. Yeah, it's, it's devastating. And a lot of Canadians, you know, are obviously fighting for their release. Um, there, you, you wrote a bit about how there was a, a Canadian lawyer told the judge to resist the exciting narrative of abuse. Um, do you want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, I mean, the Canadian government's point of view, or at least I should say the Canadian government lawyers who are representing the American government's point of view, uh, say that uh, what Mung's team is trying to do is trying to play this out as a trial here in Canada. They're trying to, they say that uh, the Mung Wanjiao's team is trying to depict this extradition case as a trial. And they say, no, this isn't a trial at all. Um, this isn't to determine her guilt or innocence. Um, this is simply to determine whether or not she should be sent to the United States uh, to face trial to determine her guilt or innocence. Uh, and, and that was um, that quote that you cited came from um, uh, Robert Freighter, who is the Department of Justice's uh, top lawyer. It's their top counsel for the government of Canada. Uh, so that indicates just how seriously the government is taking this, uh, that they've got literally their top litigator on this case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are some concerns about witness safety. Um, yeah, I guess if you want to, you know, it just seems obvious, but if you want to talk a little bit about that, what, what are people concerned about and who are they concerned about? Yeah, well, this is actually um, a specific aspect of the case. Um, there was a, a, an RCMP sergeant named Ben Chang yes. who was involved in um, 
basically involved in the processes after Meng Wanzhou was arrested. Uh, now, he also had communications with the FBI, and one of the aspects that Meng Wanzhou's lawyers want to uh, hone in on is uh, supposed uh, misbehaviour that linked the, the, the treatment of Meng Wanzhou to improper dealings between the RCMP and the FBI. Basically, the, the RCMP and the border officers here at the airport were acting supposedly at the behest of the FBI. Um, the problem is that Ben Chang doesn't live in Canada anymore. Ben Chang actually lives in Macau, where he's no longer works for the RCMP. He uh, actually works as an executive for a casino yeah. in Macau. Now, he has refused to testify, hmm. much to the chagrin of Meng Wanzhou's lawyers. He has refused to come back. Uh, to Canada to um, face face this courtroom. And the, the reason has been very murky, but one document that I obtained uh, says that the reason why he doesn't want to talk or didn't want to talk to government lawyers and why information was being redacted by the government lawyers was uh, on the grounds of witness safety, fears for the safety of Ben Chang, who, as I said, mm. you know, currently lives on Chinese soil. Because mm -hmm. he was an RCMP officer and he was he had connections to Hong Kong. Um, he he was a what was his role again? Yeah, he was actually uh, part of this sort of elite group who were RCMP liaison officers around the world, and he was based in Hong Kong uh, for a number of years as one of as, as an RCMP liaison officer. And I, I imagine that's where his um, his connections that got him that job in Macau came from, hmm. um, because it's not an uncommon course for mm -hmm. top police officers in Hong Kong to end up working um, in some capacity generally as security at Macau casinos. You know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. they're very well-paid positions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It does, and I, I know you haven't been covering this much lately, but it does kind of tie into what's happening in Vancouver. We have a lot of, I mean, obviously so many news reports and, you know, <laughs> a lot of stuff happening with our casinos and some corruption and some crime and trials and <laughs> everything going on there. Um, yeah, let's, I guess, let's talk about Huawei a bit. Um, I know a lot of people are very excited about the technology, their beautiful phones. Um, mm. What don't most Canadians know about that technology or about the company that you think would be important for us to know? Well, I think the, the tensions that exist over Huawei relate to how uh, it, its technologies are employed. Um, we're not talking about handsets here. We're talking about uh, the skeleton that forms the basis of the internet around the world. And we're talking about 5G technology and the way that uh, that infrastructure is going to be created over the coming years. And that's going to be a real world changing um, apparatus. What the concerns are here among intelligence folk and people who are, are worried about Huawei is that, you know, to what extent does Huawei operate at the behest of the Chinese government? To what extent can Huawei be understood in the same way that a private company in the West is understood as opposed to um, a large sort of, you know, Merkley founded conglomerate um, that operates under, you know, under an authoritarian, on the, under an authoritarian government? Um, does, does Huawei at the end of the day operate at the behest of the Chinese government? You know, Huawei would say not, but mm -hmm. to some extent, um, a big company like that does have to be very careful 
how it operates. It has to sort of, I can't, for instance, picture a situation where, you know, if Beijing ordered Huawei quietly to do something, would Huawei resist? Is Huawei in a position to resist? Is any company uh, in, in, within operating inside mainland China in a position to resist? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the concerns. You know, it's not just that Huawei is some company that makes phones. Yeah. In effect, Huawei is a company that makes the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and there are criticisms, you know, coming from that side about, you know, the, the West and our corporations and all of the misdeeds and, you know, things that have been going on and, and similar questions. Would you say no to Facebook, to Twitter? Um, should they ask for some a favor from the government? Um, sure. You know, I mean, I think they're all valid questions. I think, though, that uh, in the West, um, these matters should technically be dealt with with. Uh, under some form of transparency. You know, you've got a relatively transparent rule of law here. Um, You know, security, national security matters notwithstanding, uh, if Apple wants to resist an FBI request to access its information, it will go to court and do so. Or or alternatively, the FBI will have to go to court and try to order Apple to do this. That's not going to happen in China. You're not going to have, um, you know, the Chinese security apparatus going to court in China to try to require a company to do something. You know, it just doesn't play out like that uh, in China. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, which is the genuine concern. Um, We could talk a little bit about just the differences. I mean, everybody's heard Trump say everything that he he said about, about, you know, this technology and, you know, a little bit, a few conspiracy theories, but also, you know, has concerns that Americans, um, you know, hold. Talk about the impacts of both the U.S. presidencies, um, Trump versus Biden, on mm. the, on this extradition. Well, I mean, on Meng Wanzhou's case, the the intervention, various interventions of Donald Trump had a profound impact on the case. Uh, it, it created the impression that uh, this was a political persecution, that this was a political prosecution um, uh, to further. Donald Trump's uh, trade war with China. And he basically said that himself, you know, to, to the extent that you can understand uh, what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth as, as, as the truth or, or as what he even regards as the truth or whatever happens to pass through his mind at any given time. He certainly <laughs> did say that, um, you know, he would intervene in the case if he thought it would help America's, um, uh, America economically, if he thought it would help win the trade war with China. Now, that's, that's a fairly shocking thing to say about a live case. It's a fairly, you know, quite an amazing sort of intervention. And Meng Wanzhou's lawyers latched onto that, and they've used that as one of the platforms uh, to argue that Meng Wanzhou, in fact, is facing an abusive process. And because of that abusive process, she should be, um, her case should be thrown out and she should be allowed to return to China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's been happening, I guess, with this new administration under Biden? Well, under the new administration, we haven't seen much change. I mean, we haven't seen, uh, for instance, any moves to drop this case. But what we have had um, are, are, are rumblings that uh, that there might be a deal, that there might be some sort of plea deal reached between the Americans and Meng Wanzhou that would, you know, somehow result in her going home. That was reported by the Wall Street Journal. Now, I haven't seen anything out of that lately. I haven't seen any movement on that ground lately. And we are coming to the pointy end of the extradition hearing. We're coming up to the final stages. It was supposed We were supposed to be in the final stages right now, in fact. But um, there was a new tranche of evidence 
that uh, is being examined. Uh, and but but still, we're we're still on track to 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 wrap this up. You know, probably sometime in August after summer. Um, but you know, I, I haven't seen a huge huge shift in the way that the Biden administration is dealing with with China. Um, we've seen less eruptions. We've seen fewer fewer of the kind of you know Trump style verbal eruptions about China. And you know, he, he's not tweeting anymore. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, the, the, these charges still exist and the tensions with China aren't going to go away, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I guess we could move to, you've done, obviously, you, you covered what was happening in 2019 in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened then for people who didn't follow? Or what are, what are people in Hong Kong still wanting the West to know? Well, what happened in what happened in 2019 were these extremely large-scale protests. Uh, ostensibly, these protests were about um, a new law that would have allowed suspects to be extradited from Hong Kong into mainland China, and we saw millions of people on the street mm-hmm. as a result of um, concern about that. Uh, and what that led to uh, was a more general um, uh, movement for political reform in Hong Kong, uh, which was met by an overwhelming um, uh, counteraction by the Hong Kong police, by the Hong Kong government, by the authorities in China um, uh, to suppress that. Uh, And ultimately that led to the introduction of something called the national security law. And that was basically an expression of uh, Chinese national security laws in Hong Kong. And uh, that has served to uh, greatly dampen the democratic aspirations of the Hong Kong people, unfortunately. Um, I think we've seen the, the, the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement uh, was really uh, knocked over by, by, by that, that law. Uh, and, and that's something that's triggered concern around the world. Mm-hmm. You know? And we saw counter-protests and counter-movements against this uh, on the streets of Vancouver, because yep. Vancouver, of course, is a very Chinese and very Hong Kong city. We've got a huge population of both mainland Chinese people and Hong Kong-born people and descendants of Hong Kong people in Vancouver who are very, very heavily invested in the fate of Hong Kong. And that includes myself, for instance. You know, I'm a Hong Kong um, permanent resident as well, as is my wife. Uh, and so we're very heavily invested in in the fate of that city. And, you know, and, and that's on a lot of people's minds right now because we're approaching the June 4 um, anniversary this week, the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. That's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a very um, difficult, difficult thing to, to watch for sure. Mm. Um, the Canadian census, the, I, I could have this wrong. Um, there, there was a motion to say, declare yourself a Hong Konger rather than a Chinese Canadian. Yeah, something like that. You know, the, the, this has um, uh, become uh, quite a big deal for Hong Kongers here. Uh, is the expression of identity because a lot of Hong Kongers feel uh, that their specific identity is being um, erased or minimised uh, because of you know um, the incursion of mainland Chinese identity and a more general. Uh, Chinese identity and so to that end there was a campaign in the census to declare yourself to be not just a Chinese Canadian or ethnically Chinese but to say that you were a Hong Konger and um, you're a Hong Kong Canadian so it's something that 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 um, that emerged recently. 
Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about xenophobia. Um, you do see a lot of groups going around Vancouver saying that, of course, we want to address the horrific anti-Asian hate and you know violence. Um, but what about the idea that you can criticize a government? I mean, I'm sure no American wants to be be called a Trumper. You know that mm. it is against Donald Trump. Um, criticism of governments versus individuals and a culture well i think a lot of a lot of people who are in this arena uh, are always concerned about not conflating uh, mm-hmm. criticism of the chinese government and chinese government actions or hong kong government actions or whatever or hong kong or, or chinese money flows for instance chinese influence on on um on the real estate playing field don't conflate that uh with anti-chinese racism um, that these are two different things and you can be concerned mm-hmm. about both. You can be concerned about unaffordability and Chinese money and you can be concerned about the Chinese government and you can be, be concerned about Hong Kong at the same time as being concerned about anti-Chinese racism and mm-hmm. anti, anti-Asian racism in general as well. Uh, so I think that, that there are some people who do try to conflate that, who do try to use um, you know, the, 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 the overall banner of um, stopping Asian hate, which is a very laudable goal, to also uh, suppress discussion about mm-hmm. things like the role of Chinese money in the real estate market or the role of the Chinese government or scrutiny of Huawei, all those kind of things. And the Chinese government itself uh, has been active in fermenting that kind of thing too. You know, you've seen Chinese diplomats around the world uh, have been um, uh, using stop Asian hate as a cudgel against the West, uh, you know, and... And I think that most people who look at this closely sort of roll their eyes a bit when they see a Chinese diplomat, um, you know, acting like a social justice warrior. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, for a casual observer, some of that might sound reasonable. And, you know, I think that's concerning to a lot of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not wanting it to be used to quash dissent from people mm-hmm. who have genuine concerns. I did see exactly what you're talking about on uh, Steve Pike and TVO Ontario. Um a diplomat saying, you know, when there's criticism of, you know, the Uyghur population mm. pointing to, well, you know, look at Canada's indigenous population or saying you guys are, you know, hurting individuals based on, you know, the anti-Asian hate and all of that. Um, diplomat saying, saying there, that. Oh, there, there is a very strong strain of whataboutism yeah. in the Chinese diplomatic corps at the moment. And, um, you know, the, uh, e- even with regarding things like the terrible discovery of um, uh, uh, up at Kamloops, the discovery of those 215 children who were buried there, that's been used um, um, repeatedly on social media by uh, supporters of the Chinese government to say, well, what about ism? What about? You can look at that. and you, what, what right do you have uh, to complain about our human rights record? Um, mm-hmm. Which I... You know, I think that's an incredibly long bow to draw, um, that you can be concerned about both of those things at the same time. It's the fact that um, this awful atrocity occurred doesn't preclude the possibility that other governments are also involved in awfully atrocious things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When it's being used to deflect attention, which, you know, makes sense that, that one would do that um, to, to put the attention off of themselves. Um I want to talk about, you did a series of investigative pieces on Vancouver care homes yeah. and COVID, and specifically there was a policy that caused delays in declaring 
an emergency and you know we saw a lot of, of deaths as the result of, of that policy do you want to describe what that policy was yeah uh, this is a policy known as enhanced surveillance or enhanced monitoring and the reason i uh, became aware of this policy was i was um you know closely scrutinizing what happened at little mountain place and little mountain place for people who don't know is a care home in east vancouver not far from where i live actually mm-hmm. um where uh, 41 elders died you know 90 percent of the facility became infected um and most of those residents are ethnically chinese and that's one of the reasons why i was closely looking at it um, because it's of interest to my um to my the community that i speak to uh, and it emerged that the outbreak there uh, wasn't actually declared when the first staff member fell sick hmm. you know so we had a we had a staff member falling sick uh, and testing positive to COVID. But, you know, the next very next day, visits were allowed to continue, group activities, group meals and things like that were allowed to go on under this strategy, new strategy introduced in November um, called enhanced surveillance. Uh, and the illness ran rampant through that facility. Uh, and so what I did is that I wanted to know to what extent was that policy also employed at other care homes in Vancouver. And it turned out that that policy of enhanced surveillance, of not declaring an outbreak when a staff member had tested positive to COVID-19, had been employed at 42 care homes that subsequently underwent full-blown outbreaks where a thousand people were infected and, and, you know, almost 200 people died. Um, So, you know, I thought that was quite, you know, a shocking thing. And that, to, to find... To find that out, I had to go through a rather intensive um, pursuit of the data under freedom of information laws uh, because uh, the, the certainly Vancouver Coastal Health was very reluctant to hand it over and Fraser Health too wouldn't hand over this data um, without me filing those freedom of information requests. So it was quite an arduous process to get hold of that information, which I think was quite telling. You know, I think that's that's would surprise a lot of people that... Um, outbreaks weren't being declared where staff had fallen sick. When staff had first fallen sick, people were allowed to continue with visits and, you know, group activities, et cetera, in many cases. And that, I think that did surprise a lot of people and that sparked a lot of discussion. Is it just protectionism? Is it, they didn't want to No, well, there was, the the reasons for the policy are complicated. And, um, you know, I think there are, uh, there are reasons there are sound medical justifications for a policy like that. Uh, But at the same time, um, what Vancouver Coastal Health told me was that um, the the reason they introduced this policy in November was to preserve staff resources Mm -hmm. because um, they wouldn't otherwise be able to handle the outbreaks that were occurring elsewhere. And similarly, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and others have said that uh, the justification for enhanced surveillance was because they didn't want residents to suffer the deprivation of social interactions that took pl- that, that, that would be denied under outbreak status. You know, so both of those things I think are very um, concerning. Both of those justifications, uh, and and I think this policy will continue to get more scrutiny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that isn't really. I, I know so many people who were concerned just about their, you know their grandparents at the end of their lives being, you know, locked into a room and not being able to socialize. And, and it does seem, um, you know, 
how would you properly address you've got two conflicting um yeah concerns which is it's it's a tough place to be <laughs> sure i think it's a question of how you prioritize it um but i think that um the scale of the losses that occurred uh mm-hmm. at care homes that employed enhanced surveillance you know i think is eyebrow raising the fact that um we're talking about a thousand people being infected we're talking about 200 deaths uh that's a significant portion of the second wave we're talking about here and that's just the vancouver care homes that i that i was scrutinizing in particular um so while i you know while i think it's it's entirely valid to be concerned about uh the loss of social interaction for people who are put under outbreak status um should we not also be concerned about this vast loss of life uh, Mm -hmm. that occurred in places that tried to preserve those social interactions Mm-hmm. So in doing this reporting, did you speak to a lot of people who had had their, you know, their relatives in these facilities? Yeah, I mean, I, I focused very closely on um, relatives of um, people who died at uh, Little Mountain Place, uh, people who, you know, were confused uh, by this policy, who couldn't understand why, um, why outbreak strategies weren't put in place why outbreak precautions weren't immediately put in place when they first detected COVID-19 among staff. Uh, And, you know, I obtained leaked um, Zoom meetings between uh, medical health officers and residents in which the medical health officers basically admit that the outbreak was, um, was worsened by the fact that staff members continued to go to work even when they were showing COVID symptoms because of this phenomenon called presenteeism where they didn't want to let down the facility. They knew that they were already under strain. Um, They knew that they were understaffed. So when they felt sick, they either deliberately or subconsciously downplayed their symptoms and kept going to work. And I think that also shocked a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So since, since, I mean, it's, it's been over a year, almost two years, well, year and a half, do you feel that we have, you know, is, is there any movement to properly address? I mean, the, the main concern seems to be understaffing, um, you know, would there, would there be any sense of training more people to deal with these, these, these care homes or, you well, know, what I, forward, how do we, how do we prevent this? What I would say is that, you know, relatively BC did pretty well. You know, relative to a lot of other places, VC uh, did quite well. But that doesn't um, also preclude the possibility that, that mistakes and bad mistakes and life, um, you know, mistakes that, that cause great loss of life also occurred. You know, those two things can be equally true. Um, the, the seniors ombudswoman, um, Isabel McKenzie, is, is going to conduct a review. There's going to be an investigation. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix has also said that he's going to investigate um, the process of enhanced surveillance. Um, and so we'll see where that ends up. You know, I, I, there have been concerns in the care industry about uh, lack of testing and things like that, uh, which I think would probably be quite specific to pandemic status. But, you know, the whole... The whole situation of the pandemic has thrown a very unpleasant spotlight on the way that long-term care homes are run. Uh, And I think there will be a reckoning. And I think that, you know, that's going to come, you know, sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Does it bring up in your mind just the discussion of, 
how we treat our elders in the West. Um, you know, obviously there's a concern of people who don't have the finances can't afford, you know, really high quality care. Um, even the expensive care has its problems. Is there a discussion to be had here about how we treat our elders? Well, yeah, I, I think there is. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons why I specifically got interested in, in this was because of the terrible loss at Little Mountain Place, which, as I said, was very heavily focused on the Chinese community and the Asian community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that there, is a, there is a big debate, a, a big conversation that needs to be had about that. I mean, the, I, I think that it caught a lot of people unaware that these care homes were so vulnerable. And I'm not talking here just about uh, residents and and, and relatives and the lay, lay public, I'm talking here about um, health authorities were set back on their heels mm-hmm. when it emerged that care homes were the real hotbed for these for this disease uh, and hotbed for transmission. That, you know, that just raises a lot of questions because we've had previous experience with this with SARS and with various influenza outbreaks and things like that. You know, so I think it did catch a lot of people unaware that this, the, the, the conditions were so ripe for such terrible losses at care homes. I don't think even people had even been thinking about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems like an issue to be concerned about, but that wouldn't get big enough, you know, and, and it did, so. Well, you, you, you know, you, you, you hypothetical tragedies don't actually create headlines. You know, I mean, that's the harsh way to say it, is that, you know, it, it took a pandemic for people to be aware of, of these risks, to be aware of, um, you know, the, the situation in care homes and um, to wonder whether or not we were doing doing our best by our elders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This conversation reminds me of, I was just trying to find it, um, Aeon Magazine, they have a publication called Psych and they, they do a lot of, um, you know, obviously they talk about psychology, they have, um, you know, a lot of philosophy on there, but there was an article, uh, I'll send it to you, I mm. find it, but just about uh, the Chinese philosophy on mental health and on health, it, it knows that health is communal. Um, whereas the West, we have a lot of, you know, very individual and, and it's, a, it's a fascinating read. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts well- on well, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to weigh in too much about on, on the, the different philosophies and what might or might not um, have mitigated what happened here. But I would say, you know, that care homes in Hong Kong uh, and other parts of Asia, East Asia in particular, haven't ha- suffered anywhere near as bad as an out- a set of outcomes as was suffered in, in the West, in the UK, in Canada and in the United States. Um, is that a function of the way that the elders are regarded? Is it a function of general pandemic awareness? Is it a function of, um, of specific policies? I, I don't know, but it, well, it's certainly quite a striking difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, I guess, as we wrap up here, um, is there anything you're working on right now that you want to mention? Well, I'm still working on care homes. You know, I am still working on that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I still have an interest in in um, how Hong Kong's place in the world will play out and how that plays out here in the streets of Vancouver. Because as I said, Vancouver is is so much a function of what happens in Hong Kong and so much a function of what happens in China. Um, 
you know, the, and of course, Meng Wanzhou, you know, they're, they're the big three stories that I've been working on for the past couple of years. And, you know, I think I'll still be working on them for quite a while. Even Meng Wanzhou, even if the case is, is uh, wrapped up this year, um, I can foresee appeals that drag on for much longer after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, interesting. Well, I really appreciate you coming to talk. Um, I'm excited to get this up and yeah, I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. No problem, Tracy. Thank you very much for your time too. Of course. And I'll, I'll be reading your, your articles. So, and following you on Twitter, I tried to, to, to log off Twitter and only focus on neuroscience. I wasn't <laughs> in all of the outrage of the day, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. So. All right. Thank you very much. It's great to talk to you, Tracy. Of course. Bye, Ian. Thank you. Bye-bye.